As a result of the outbreak, your city or entire region may be endangered by a lethal agent. If conditions at your location make this a possibility, you need to consider staying in place until the threat has subsided or blown over. The following steps will ensure that your home will serve as a biological or chemical safe haven. Broadcasting live from a lighthouse here at the end of the world in British Columbia, you are listening to the Lighthouse Broadcasts with me, your host, Connor Brogan. listening to this, which I doubt many of you are, considering the last person I saw was in Kelowna about eight weeks ago when I was scavenging through uh, some remains and that old guy in that house shot at me. I am trying to get in contact with any survivors there may be left around the British Columbia area. Um, I don't need to explain to you what happened. It has been, I, I don't know the exact date, but it has been, I'd say roughly a thousand days since the internet went down. Yeah, it's the last couple of months have been whatever it's been. Uh, they've been weird. I have, of course, reverted to the only thing that I know how to do, which is make a radio show. Before all of this kicked off, I was working in a radio station in Toronto. Just emigrated there from the Republic of Ireland, as you've probably noticed from my dulcet tones. I am Irish. Now, that brings me to my next point, which is I find it hard to keep things straight in my head. And that's actually what this is about. Something I didn't notice or realize was that when you don't talk to human beings for a long period of time, what happens inside your head and what's happening outside of your head, eventually you find yourself at a point where you actually can't keep track of what's in your head and what's outside your head. And I've been, to say the least, seeing some strange things lately. And mental illness runs a long history in my family is probably just that. But I was scavenging through the Kitsilano area there recently and I saw uh, an, an Irish flag hanging from a bedroom window. However, I'll be honest, the fact that I haven't seen another human being in a long time, I'm pretty lonely and I, I don't mind admitting that to all of you uh, because all of you is no one. I'm going to keep pretending like there's people out there. I mean, how fucking weird is that compared to some of the stuff that's been happening to me lately, but... Or the fact that I am what seems to be the last person alive in this area. Anyway, I am searching for survivors. I am searching to contact other human beings and maybe 
develop some sort of a civil society that happened before this. So if you are listening to this, I have left a microwave on top of the Vancouver Public Library. It's in the overgrown garden. If you walk in through the back of the, there's like a glass sliding door and the doors, obviously it's electric, so it's not working, but it is closed, but you can actually just slide it open, pop it open and walk back. There is a microwave in there buried amongst the weeds. Just leave something there, leave a message, leave whatever. I'm not going to hunt you down, kill you, take your supplies or anything like that. I'm trying to reach a point where we return to some sort of normality. But anyway, back to the scavenging part. I was in Kitsilano, saw the Irish flag, went, started rummaging through the house and I found these notebooks and I started reading. But I found when I was reading these notebooks, they're full of like these short stories written by somebody from back home, I think, um, before all of this kicked off. I found myself reading the short stories and I had an easier time telling what was inside and what was outside. So I'm hoping if I come here on a fairly regular basis and read these stories, it will help to keep my mind alert or sharp or, I don't know, functioning. So here it goes. For the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be reading these short stories and I'm going to try and return as often as I can on a fairly regular basis. I will obviously be playing the distress call on the same frequency. I'm not gonna specify which lighthouse it is. Please don't come to the lighthouse and murder me. That would be great. But apart from that, here is our first story. It is called Powers. He was sure there was a bit of burger stuck in his teeth by the time he got to the bad stretch of road. He ran his tongue through the grooves in between his teeth trying to force something loose, just for the momentary satisfaction of being clean. He couldn't exactly go reaching around the car for something to pry it loose. He didn't want to push it. He was already driving on a particularly bad piece of road, well over the limit. He thought reaching over the car as well was a bit too hazardous to try. Roundwood, despite being less than an hour from Dublin, had unusually windy and bad roads. It's as if Wicklow County Council got tired after getting the dart all the way to Greystones and took the afternoon off. They wound up through hills and fields, sweeping views of glen with gorse and heather one minute, a cow shoulder deep in a waterlogged field the next. James was having that feeling that his vision was being impeded again. A thin film of something was in the way. For a moment he thought it was his eye. He blinked and rolled his eye back in its socket, clear. He then realized it was something on the windscreen, some kind of thin scum clinging to the wet glass. He punched the wipers on. He even pulled the stick back and bathed them in wiper fluid. No joy. He was beginning to get impatient. He pulled his right fist towards himself, trying to grab hold of his sleeve. Once he had gotten his sleeve, he rigorously rubbed the screen inside the glass anti-clockwise. Then his mind drifted back to that night. The last night he can't remember because of the drink. The night he tries not to think about. Suddenly he saw a silhouette on the road. It was as if his blood turned to ice. A shock ran down his spine, hitting every last vertebrae on the way like a marimba. His foot was pressing the brake to the floor. His reaction times were usually spot on, but he wasn't so sure. He closed his eyes and braced for the worst, some crunch or smash, something he had never done before. But nothing came. When he opened his eyes, he was fine, save for the minor twinge in his neck of the anti-lock braking system, throwing the car backwards and forwards in such quick succession. The daunting figure on the road turned out to be nothing more than a sheep, a lamb, really. 
It looked about a year old and the fright from the incident had presumably triggered the flight reaction and it was currently trying to squeeze through a hole in a wire fence. The frenzied panic from the sheep only finally relenting when it managed to wiggle its little arse through a fence and sprint off into the night. James breathed out, harshly, which for a second only exacerbated the palpitations in his chest. The beer, the shock, what James assumed was his family's doom ticker syndrome and the inconstant breathing made him a little lightheaded and he worried for a second. James then got a singular feeling that he was too young to die, which was soon dispatched considering the danger he was in was now over. Anyways, he hated those people who made a big deal out of those things, like older people who had falls and say they got an awful fright. Welcome to the world, he thought. This place was shit and terrifying. Did it really take a fall in your 70s to figure it out? In truth, though, it did frighten him, and he was pleased to still be alive. He looked down and slowly wrapped his fingers around the gear stick, and just as he was giving it a lucky shake before putting it into the clutch, he saw something beguiling. Three bright lights in the sky over the empty Wicklow Glen. At first, he didn't think much of it. He thought it was a plane, or a helicopter or something. The car started to move again. As the car shuddered, the three lights, which had been in a uniform straight line equidistant apart, became brighter. They had gone from the size and brightness of a plane to about the brightness of a street light. Then the lights began to move and pulse. Whereas they were in a straight line before, they were now moving in circles, rotating clockwise, then anti-clockwise. Then they began to pulse not only in strength, but as they moved, almost as if they were attached to the legs of a cosmic octopus swimming through the Irish night sky. James racked his mind for an explanation of what it was. Those lanterns were popular at weddings now, but they had one trick, which was to rise. What could hold such powerful beacons in the sky? These lights twirled in the air like smoke off the end of a stationary cigarette. He focused so much on trying to rationalize what he was seeing that he realized he wasn't really paying attention to it. For some reason, the voice of a faceless cop came to mind. Eyewitnesses are completely unreliable. Well, he wouldn't be unreliable. He would gather a detailed account of this. He patted his pockets to check for his phone. Nothing in any of them. Then he remembered he had thrown it into the back of the car in a fit of temper earlier. It had buzzed when he was getting into the driver's seat and gave him a little lift. He thought of that night again. But when he turned it over, it was just one of those news reports from Sky that he didn't know how to turn off. James pulled the car out of gear and pulled up the handbrake. He swiveled in his seat and started patting the back seats for his device. His hand was patting the seat like a blind person reaching out for a face. He took his eye off the pulsing lights and scanned the back seats quickly. It wasn't on the seats. He reached his right hand down beside the driver's seat and when his fingers felt a lever, he pulled it. The lever allowed the back of the seat to go back as far as he wanted. Dropping back further than the passenger seat, he spotted it, reached out his left arm blindly behind the seat. His hands padded around. First time nothing, the second time too. Then, got it. He wheeled around the seat and looked up, only to be greeted by an empty black sky. He had missed it. All the way home, he thought about what he saw. Could it have been an hallucination? Was he having a hemorrhage? Was it a portal to another world? He ran through every possibility before falling asleep with an unlit cigarette hanging out the corner of his mouth. His dreams that night were vivid. The colors, the sounds, the people. In his dream, he was in someone's backyard. It was a brown concrete house that had moss growing out of the slates on the roof. The yard was covered in gravel. The house was in front of him shed behind him. It was a hulking wooden shed that looked like it had been built by an amateur. The owner of the house perhaps. He knew whose house it was. He felt younger. Much younger. Young enough that the world seemed enormous. It felt like he was at a friend's house. From behind the shed then came a tall, thin man. 
his frame rose up to the sky above James, but he wasn't worried. The opposite, in fact. He liked his person. He had great fondness for him, even. Then from behind him, a child ran out. Come on, Jim Bob, you're going to miss it, the boy said. I'm coming, he retorted out of instinct more than anything. He felt like a friend, a best friend perhaps, or a family member, but he couldn't see his face. James followed the man and the boy behind the shed, which led to a field of wild grass, which sloped down to a small stream at the edge of the field. The bank on the far side adorned with thick hedges and bush, the near side for the most part too, apart from a small break in the bush that connected to a patch of uncovered soil. A path worn into the brush, presumably by fishers. Jim Bob. Whoever called him Jim Bob. The tall man was waiting at a fence that James hadn't noticed before. His smile was warm. This made James feel warm. His left leg pressed the bottom wire of the fence lazily, and the man lifted the top as James went to pass through. On the other side, the boy was already hunched over what looked like an old vinyl shopping bag. He plodded his way over to him, and for some reason put both hands behind his back when leaning into him. The other boy caught what he was doing at the corner of his eye and gave James the nod he didn't realise he was waiting for. The boy continued to rock back and forth. The tall man slung his head over the boys, using his full height to loom over the two. Then he pulled a face that both boys giggled at. He then ran both his hands down the back of his thighs and stopped at the back of his knees and in a swooping motion hunkered down to the boys. His right hands reached out to his vinyl bag and pinched the zipper. While he slowly pulled the brass zip towards him, James noticed round scars on his hand. One on his forearm even resembled a love heart. Put out your hands, the man said softly to the other boy. The other boy started to rock back and forth faster now. He reached out his hands trembling. The man reached his arm, covered in scars and protruding in sinew into the bag and very gently pulled out a tiny black and white kitten, certainly no more than three months old. The man produced another almost identical cat for James. James was entranced. The cat's features were so small and cute. The cat was so minute that all of his features looked like a cartoon. Its little teeth were pristine white with its canines protruding way above the rest. The cat began to lick at James's fingers, which made him giggle and jump at regular intervals. James looked at the other boys. He was grinning from ear to ear. He clearly didn't like the nipping in his fingers either. As he sat down cross-legged on the ground and put the kitten in the small gap of space between his two legs, James felt pleased about this. A deep, warm satisfaction, which he couldn't tell if it was for the cats or the look on the other boy's face. But it only lasted for what felt like a second before the man took the cat's back, first James's, then the other boy, and put the cat's back into a vinyl bag. He pulled the zip back across and it closed with a thud. A thud so loud it woke James up. He had been asleep in the chair all night, the cigarette still glued with dried saliva to his lip. Another thud came from outside. He flipped his phone over, which confirmed two things for him. The first was that it was Tuesday and the sounds coming from outside were the bin men. The second was that he had to get up for work. James couldn't make head nor tail of what he was seeing. He could hear, but his eyes were not working. 
His eyeball gummed up like a fly smeared across a windscreen. Dumb out of his eye for a moment, he broke through. The momentary panic gave way to Cam when he saw what had caused the noise that startled him. It was Derek Quinn, the local head case. If Derek had been born now, doctors may have been able to pinpoint exactly what it was that was wrong with him. But he was born at a time and place in Ireland when everyone with mental illnesses wandered the streets and were, were known euphemistically as characters. Derek was yammering away in the phone booth. Of course, the phone had been disconnected years ago, but that didn't stop him chewing the fat in there most days. This was unusual, though. James had never seen Derek around town at this hour of night before. He always thought his mother crushed up some tranquilizers and put it in with his tea with the 6-1 news. Although she was an old frail woman by now, had she fallen? Had he gotten out? Or worse? Or none of the above? Wasn't his business. The smoke looped back over the end of James's cigarette and back into his eye, desiccating his eyeball of all moisture, and he was back thumbing out his eye once more. He was slowly getting his vision back from when over his shoulder he heard the click of the door behind him. What walked out was a small man who looked like a jockey. In fact, he looked more like a jockey than any man James had ever seen. His hands, which were uncharacteristically large for a man of his height, were a tapestry of labour. Thick fingers with skin like a tough hide, he smelled like burning leather and had a horseshoe ring on his middle finger of his right hand. His greying hair shot out in darts from under a baseball hat with a crest that read, Balnaloo Stud. James figured this guy was a farrier, or as near one as makes no odds. He's at it again, the farrier said. James grunted, acknowledging the farrier, who had now snuck in alongside him in the doorway of the pub. The two looked out on the main road of Roundwood. It was a stark picture at this time of night in the winter. It was raining on and off all day. The night was no different. One lonely street light stood in the middle of the picture, road to the right, darkened street to the left, and one light illuminating a driving rain that gave this halo effect around it. He's supposed to be some sort of genius, the farrier offered. I heard that, James said. Physics, I think. Maths, I heard. Was that it? And again, every town has some strange story like that. Some nutter in the park yelling at pigeons having trials for leads. You'd wonder if it's true at all, the farrier said. James let his hand linger in front of his mouth, looking at him. Well, if it is, it's no fucking use to him now. With that, James emerged from the doorway of the pub, taking one last drag of a cigarette before flicking the butt the five-foot distance between him and Derek, who was now coming out of the box. He was running his hands through his pockets for change that James knew wasn't there. The butt flew through the air at Derek and caught the corner of his eyebrow. The initial shock that ran through Derek was primitive. He recoiled shocked initially, still having the presence of mind to move back from the oncoming threat. He started rubbing the impact side frantically and then started to calm down, his own routine well-practiced. The farrier was turned open-mouthed at James, but he was already half the town away dipping his head into the only open takeaway. Waddling haphazardly to his car, his foot caught a small stone and he stumbled, dipping over and cracking his forehead off the driver's window. The impact bringing a tear to his eye. Too drunk to drive, he swiveled around and made for the chipper once again. Roughly an hour later, he pulled the car into gear and clenched his fist around the handbrake and clicked it up firmly. He was sad at what he thought was a driveway to some house, although in all of his life he had never known whose. They lived, however, at the most opportune spot for James to see the lights again if they showed up tonight. The air in the car dried out his mouth. Of course, the half dozen pints didn't help matters. Missing on the first two tries, he bruised his thumb into the seatbelt clip and 
bursting back and nearly cracking the window in the process. He slid his arse forward in the chair to get nice and comfortable. Taking his packet of cigarettes out of his pocket with his left hand, James thrust his right hand out and found the window button. He lit the cigarette, breathed in deeply, and settled in for the long haul. Looking down and seeing that it was after 2am at one point, but he remained patient. He reached for his cigarettes again, only to realise that this was his last one. If he was thinking clearer, he probably would have checked the time. Running out of cigarettes always felt like a sad occasion for him. Like a condensed version of saying goodbye to an old friend at the airport. But he didn't, and by the time the cigarette had burned to the butt, it hung out of the corner of his mouth impotently as James fell again into a deep sleep. His sleep was again full of vivid colour and what felt like memory. He was back at the house again, except this time it was just him and the tall, thin man. He was wearing old, worn-out jeans that had holes in them. Not designer holes, though. The sort of holes designers tried to recreate. They had paint on them just above the right knee and some plaster beneath the left pocket. The man's arms were in his pockets, arms bowing in the middle, leading up to broad shoulders, with little flesh on the bone. His frame was rhomboid-shaped, thin and wiry, but tough. His t-shirt was from a band. James could see the image, but couldn't read the text. It was like it was written in a language designed to look exactly like English, but not be legible. The man's face bore a smile. The same smile as before, and James was filled with that feeling he felt before. Except this time it was way stronger. It was intoxicating. He admired him and wanted to spend all his time with him. He felt something he never felt before, or at least not for a long time. A bond. But the image shook and shattered into shards of light and was gone. Now he was somewhere else. It was still around the same time, but James felt diametrically opposite to moments earlier. The tall, thin man was gone. He knew this now. He couldn't tell how he knew this, but he could feel it. James felt his breathing becoming infrequent. He was crying, but in a fit of temper. His insides burned with a white-hot rage. This rage allowed it gone ready to unload into the cause of all this pain and misery. The one who had made him go away. The boy. His best friend. A sudden loud banging toward James awake, springing forward from the driver's seat. There was an old grey-haired man at the window. He had a square head, hair white as snow, and a scowl that would turn milk sour. This is private property, you can't be fucking sleeping here, the man said, the old collie at his side beginning to bark. Yeah, yeah, fuck off, James said. He pulled out of the driveway and onto the road. His eyes shot down to the clock before immediately pulling a U-turn. No time to go home. James's mind fizzed all day like an Alka-Seltzer that never fully disintegrated. He rolled back into the pub half an hour earlier than he had the previous day. The first pint was a little difficult. His stomach was still pretty shaky from the feed of drink the night before, and the night before that. Before he knew it, he was four deep in within an hour. They were going back so fast he didn't even have a cigarette after the first, a routine he had gotten himself into around 20 years previously when he started drinking. After the fourth, he looked at his watch and realized that he was getting pretty drunk and it was still early. Maybe you should take a breather, have a smoke and pace himself. He made his way outside using each stool at the bar as a walking aid to guide him out. It was difficult to keep his composure. Maybe you should get a burger and go home. 
Maybe it was the lack of sleep. Maybe it was the lack of sleep and all the drink that had his mind playing tricks on him. About halfway through his smoke, he felt sick. He tried to settle himself and figure out was he going to be sick or just feel like shit until he drinks enough to puke. Time for some soakage. A quick burger and then head home for a nap, he thought. Maybe none of this was real. The lights in the sky, the dreams, the feelings the two had brought up in him. This thought stilled his mind for a moment. This thought brought a grin onto James's face. Well, at least half a grin. As much as he was capable of. He started for that chipper flicking the sickening butt into the window boxes of Mrs. McDonough's front window. She's a sour old bitch anyway, he thought to himself, but before he could remember why he hated her in the first place, a group of tracksuited youths outside the tripper, drinking cans of what James assumed was Dutch gold and Linden Village made themselves known to him. You could usually hear them before you saw them, he thought. What was a little weird was beside the group of youths was the head case Derek Quinn. He seemed to be talking to the hanging baskets outside Murphy's house, beside the chipper. He wasn't more than ten feet away from the group, but they didn't even take notice of him. Neither would James. He pulled his chin up and strode confidently towards the takeaway. He would pass Derek first, then the youths, with his mind on doing nothing to antagonize the group. He barely took heed of Derek. So little notice, in fact, he ended up plodding drunkenly into him. Sorry, Jim Bob, Derek whispered. Ice ran through James's veins. What the fuck did you just say? James said. James said, turning sloppy arc on the footpath. Derek tried to break away from the interaction. He was rocking back and forth, muttering. Those flowers are too delicate for the soil. The pH bounces off. It's all too alkaline. They're too delicate. James reached out a strong arm to Derek's chest and pushed him back and heard a voice coming from behind him. What the fuck did you just say to me? James shouted. Then whack. James felt a thump in the back of his head and a sudden cold on his neck. One of the tracksuits had thrown a half-finished can of Druid cider at him, but by the time James turned around, the group was making a beeline for him. He wasn't waiting around to see if they meant business or not. James set off drunkenly running and swerving down the street. He was in orbit. What did it mean? Did he imagine that too? So many questions rose at once James didn't realise he had walked back into the front room of the pub again. For a while he couldn't figure out what he was doing there until the barman walked out. You're back. What do you want? Whiskey was all James could muster. Was all he could muster. Searching his pockets for what he didn't know. Nagging on her shoulder. Full bottle, James said. Jameson? Powers. James had heard himself say it, but for the life of him, he couldn't remember his brain giving his mouth the instruction. It was as if the voice of self-destruction had done it for him. He sucked in a deep mouthful of air. His mouth was brushing off itself like his tongue and tonsils had been sewn up in denim. He only had two thoughts in his mind, pinning all the other to the wall. Where was he? And how did he get there? He stood up far too quickly. All the blood in his legs rushed to his head, which led to an incredible pressure behind his eyes. He thought his head might explode, like a cartoon, or more realistically that he would pass out. He was under a tree, on that same hilltop, the one where he saw the lights. Did he come out here to see them again? Did he see them again? He had no clue. Clasping his forehead between his thumb and forefinger, he dredged his mind for any memory of last night. There was nothing. He could remember getting a bottle of whiskey in the front room of Rowan's pub. After that, the memory was black. Entirely black. As if somebody had walked in and switched off the lights in his head. It had happened again. Another night for the haunting list. Patting his pockets, a shiver of excitement ran up his very delicate stomach. He had his phone. It was dead, though. 
Letting out a deep sigh, James resigned himself to the fact that he would have to walk back to town and try and find his car. But as soon as he took his first step, his misery was compounded, as sometime during the night, as if in a master stroke of self-flagellation, he had pissed himself. James felt his mind was slowly slipping from him, and he needed to cool it on the drink if he didn't want to end up like seven of his nine uncles. He pulled into the cafe at the bottom of town. Joan was in the corner, scrubbing away at something. You get a clean yet, Joan? James said. With any fucking luck, Joan shot back, lifting her head to meet James. Tea, Jim? James nodded, turning to put his work binder on the pine table just inside the window on the left of the door. It seemed like mere seconds before Joan put a cup down on the table beside James. Shocking about young Derek Quinn, isn't it? Joan said, walking to the window to wipe a smudge off the glass with the cloth. What about him? James said, that feeling returning to his stomach. The chill. Joan put the hand with the cloth on her hip. She straddled a chair opposite James with the other. Jesus, did you not hear? They found him in the woods behind his house. Joan then lifted her hand to her temple, raising the thumb and forefinger, making the shape of a gun. Bang. Christ, James said, his stomach nearly falling out of his arse. Who let that fella near a gun? He posited, his mouth becoming dry. Got it from the uncle's house, I'd say. He's part of the Kong Club. He used to go shooting with Mike Allen years ago. Joan's eyes darted back to the street. He would have made a great lookout during the rebellion against the Brits. Seeing everything says only what she has to, James thought. Last of the old guard. What about the mother? James asked. But Joan could only manage a shrug. He could tell she knew something but wasn't sure it was correct. Old people around towns had this way of passing information. Much like journalists, they had their reliable sources. Then they had their less than reliable sources that were good for a bit of gossip. But these stories were never repeated. Because there was people like Davy Heenan who always had a story, but always had it either arseways or completely fictional. Joan was an expert in picking and choosing which ones she dealt in. If she was saying it was more than likely on the button, sparing some minor details. The sinking in his stomach had stopped. James felt a calmness pouring over him. He had a little empathy for Derek. He wondered if this callousness made him a bad person. But Derek wasn't all there for starters, and he never really did anything harmful to anyone. He was more of a nuisance to James, but these dreams had brought out a rage in him. Maybe this would be the end of it, he thought. Maybe all the dreams were just that. Dreams. Maybe he imagined the lights on the hill and had some innocuous explanation. Maybe things would go back to normal. James swung the nose of his car down the narrow lane Quinn's house was on. He wanted to see if there was still any excitement going on. By the time he got up there, there was only two Garda cars. One was setting off to go. Outside the other car was Niall Malarkey, an old school friend of James's. He waved James over. Pulling the car over, James rolled down the window of the passenger side. Niall sloped like a canopy, resting his arms on the roof, his head tucked underneath to see in. Rough one, James offered. Yeah, Jesus, Niall sighed. What happened? He must have gotten into the uncle's shed and gotten hold of his shotgun. It was a fucking mess. Jesus, I didn't think he'd have it in him, to be honest. Yeah, me neither. Niall waved to the other car that was pulling out. There was a brief pause. Did I know the uncle? I can't picture him. Asked James. 
Ah, uh, you'd know him from around town. Big monster of a man. Always wears this filthy wax jacket. Another fucking head to ball, but sure it wasn't from the stones he licked at. The whole family's cracked. Niall paused, looking conflicted. Here, I'm not supposed to be finished for another hour, but I could do with a pint after that. Do you fancy it? Niall asked. As long as you don't mind leaving the people of Wicklow open to the terrors of crime and anarchy, I don't either. I think they'll survive, he mumbled, swinging himself into the passenger seat. James didn't know exactly what time it was, but judging by how much both of them drank, he would say it was roughly five hours later. He'd forgotten how easygoing Niall was. After about half an hour, his mind seemed to be off the case, and they reminisced about all the illegal things they did growing up. The irony that Niall was now on the other side of the law seemed to tickle them both, even if Niall remained resolute that he was, in his own words, the long dick of the law. Around this point of the evening, both parties seemed merry and susceptible to suggestion. This was not lost on James. He toyed with the idea of telling Niall for a moment about the last couple of days. He almost let it all go before a minute, remembering Joan. Did I tell you what I saw the last night? James and Niall were drenched to the bone. They huddled underneath a tree in the driveway James saw the lights from. He had told him the story about the lights. Niall was very interested. Maybe it was just the beer talking. Nevertheless, both men hunched underneath a fir tree that provided some semblance of shelter from the elements. So what do you reckon the chances are that you imagine this? Niall nonchalantly asked. About 80%? Niall shot him a queer look. Could have lied at least. James began moving from one foot to the other, partly because he was cold, partly because he was gagging for a piss. Niall ran his hands along himself in a seductive way. This made James chuckle a bit. Feeling a bit frisky, are you? He asked. One of the benefits of being a guard, my old friend. Niall began as he reached into the inside pocket of his super dry jacket and pulled out a long joint. Yet to confiscate this shit. James smirked at him. You still? Niall asked. Not since I was a pup, but then again, you're a shade, it's not like I'd be telling you. Niall nodded. Fair enough. He put the joint in his mouth, lit it, and then passed it to James. James' lung nearly bursted it, but he remembered not to cough. Too late. <coughs> Christ, I'm going to melt into a puddle after that, I'd say. James felt himself becoming more anxious. Maybe it was the weed, he thought, until he realised it was definitely his bladder. He turned away without a word to find a spot to relieve himself. One tree seemed to protrude from the forest like the chosen one. A smile ran across James's face. You pulling a wobbler, are you? Niall asked with a laugh. I bushed him for a piss, James responded, making Niall laugh more. James broke into a bit of a jog. The mixture of beer and cannabis made him feel like he was flying. This flying feeling giving way to a giddy giggling. James hurdled a felled tree and a stone and went for a third but got his timing wrong. His boot landed on the round edge of a large rock and his legs went from under him and went careening headfirst into a tree. James got up and expected to see Tweety Birds doing laps of his head, but there was nothing for a moment. Then it all came at once, like a flood of memories one would see in a movie before they died. First it was the lights, then it was the young boy, the kittens, the man, that feeling of a bond. Then he was in the yard again, the one from his dream before. At the door of the shed was the thin man. He went into the shed and James followed. In the shed, the other boy laid on the old couch, his back to James. It was the same boy from before. He went and sat with him on the workbench. He felt comfortable with him. He was saying things to James that James couldn't really make out. 
Then the man was everywhere. His hands were running all over James' prepubescent body. James felt sick. He'd never felt sick in a dream before. At least any dream he could remember. Before he knew it, the man leapt off James like a scalded cat, his back arching skyward. The boy who had moments before been lying on the couch had taken a garden shears and driven it into the skinny leg of the thin man. He was sitting on the floor, screaming. The boy stood in the doorway with his arms outstretched to James. James ran over and followed. Then they ran. It felt like an hour, but James couldn't be sure. He remembered the boy going up to an old brown house with a wooden shed in the front garden that James stood beside. A big monster of a man answered the door. It was all white for a moment. James was now standing with the boy and the giant. They were at the precipice of a big hole in the middle of the woods, one dug by a small excavator nearby. In the hole was a brown canvas bag. The giant turned and said one thing. This James could make out. If anyone ever asks about him, Derek, you come straight to me. The giant wore a filthy wax jacket. James came back to himself. He was bent over with his head in his hands, rubbing the bump that was now protruding from his forehead. Niall was calling in the background for him, but he couldn't really hear him. It couldn't be true. Were James and Derek best friends as kids? It couldn't be true. Much as he tried to fight it, James felt it, like a puzzle piece sliding into place. Derek Quinn, the village idiot. Now he was gone, I would never get the chance to ask. James, you're going to miss it. James could discern Niall between the noise in his head for only a moment. He walked back over to him, utterly numb. He rounded the trees just in time to see three bright lights in the sky, pulsing and then disappear. It did happen, James whispered. On the way back to town, James said nothing, while Niall kept babbling on. The mixture of cannabis and Guinness had loosened his tongue, and he was now beginning to wax lyrical about work. James didn't have any interest, he was still numb. He couldn't piece it all together. The wax jacket, Derek, the lights, real, not real. Niall's voice poked through. I never pegged him for a drinker. I never pegged him for a drinker. This line piqued the attention of James. He couldn't tell for the life of him why. Who? he asked. Derek Quinn. Derek Quinn drank. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, his house was like a pharmacy with all the pills they had him on. It's a wonder he didn't die from all that. So how did you know he drank? You couldn't have bloods back that quickly. Nah, nah, we found a bottle of Powers beside him. Powers. The word rang like a bell in James's ear. His whole body turned into stone. Then he remembered all of it. Last night's blackout flooded back. As did that feeling in his stomach. 